0: Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For
1: more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com.
2: I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more.
0: Good morning and welcome to Inside School Food, where we bring you in-depth shop talk for people working in and around K-12 food service. I'm Laura Stanley. Uh, Pardon my absence last Monday, I was catching my breath following the Farm to to Institution New England Summit in Amherst, Massachusetts, where I was privileged to tell some of my favorite farm to school stories from this show in a keynote talk. Um, I also learned about a lot of super creative and interesting projects in New England and beyond. So lots of great material for new episodes this summer and fall. So stay tuned for those. Um today's episode will be our first about the new rules regulating what foods can be sold during the school day a la carte in school stores and vending machines and for funding wor- uh, fundraising. In other words, smart snacks. Um, there, there's a fair amount to know about these rules, which went into place in July of last year. Uh, today's conversation is going to assume that you're up to speed about them, um, but if you're not, you will find links to everything you need in the resources uh, box on today's show page on insideschoolfood.com. We have two guests today. Uh, Jessica Donza-Black is director of the Safe and Healthful Kids Project. She's back for her second visit with Inside School Food. After station break, we will be speaking with Dr. Lynette Dodson, who is director of school nutrition for Carrollton City Schools in Carrollton, Georgia. Um, I expect most listeners are already familiar with safe and healthy kids um, which is a collaboration between the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Pew Charitable Trusts um, they provide nonpartisan analysis and evidence-based recommendations on policies that affect safety and healthfulness of school food and you probably already know about Jessica who is uh, in my opinion, one of the nation's finest minds assigned to problem-solving and school food on a national scale. Uh, few people deliver better clarity and insight on some of the messiest, most complicated issues. And um, Smart Snacks falls into that category, especially recently. So, Jessica, I'm really pleased to welcome you back. Thank you. It is certainly my pleasure to be here. Okay. So Safe and Healthful Kids has taken on a critical role in helping us understand what's going on with Smart Snacks state-by-state. Um, The USDA has given states a fair amount of autonomy with regard to certain aspects of the rules. So your website provides one-stop shopping for anyone who wants to understand how the rules have been adopted in each state. And so far, the state policies range pretty widely from very strict to very permissive. And people can look at this info side by side with the child obesity rates in each state, which can be pretty telling. Um, So I'd say it's an effective platform for your Advocacy of strong smart snacks policies um, nationwide, um, and so Jessica. Before I launch in with a question, is there anything else you want to was, you know, kind of establish regarding um, safe and healthy kids' work um, on smart snacks?
1: No, I think you've laid it out really nicely. We have some resources available that we'll reference as we talk about things, and um, and we're certainly active in the process of trying to help schools figure out how to move forward with all of this. Great.
0: Okay, so. Can you give us a couple of examples to help us kind of get a grasp of just how, you know, why the spectrum of responses is from state to state?
1: Well, it's probably important to start with the baseline that many Mm -hmm. states had passed policies prior to Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act and certainly prior to USDA's rules ever being initiated. So one of the things that our state side-by-sides do, if folks look on our website, is actually look at what the state policy was at baseline in comparison to what USDA's Smart Snacks policies is so they can start to see where, if anywhere, there have to be changes. And in some cases, states had elements of their policy that already set a higher bar than USDA said. Mm -hmm. In other cases, they may have had further to go just to meet the USDA bar. So there was a fair amount of variability at baseline, as people living in those states know from what they already had to comply with. And then USDA sort of raised the floor by setting the policy and said, okay, these are going to be the minimum standard. So anything below this, states need to harmonize their policy to come to this point, but don't necessarily need to go higher than that, Mm -hmm. although they can maintain all the parts of their policy that were stronger at baseline. But the other piece that USDA gave states ownership of was determining what would be allowed in terms of occasional exemptions for fundraisers. USDA, you know, decided it wasn't within their purview to basically rule out all possible fundraisers throughout the school day. Mm-hmm. The law makes it really clear that you can't exempt vending machines or school stores or a la carte lines or those things that are there on a daily basis, but that you can have you know, quote unquote, occasional fundraisers. And so that was on the states to determine. And that's where we've seen some tremendous variability.
0: Right. And can you just you know, give us an example of that variability? I guess one state that is stricter and one that is not strict at all?
1: Sure. So, you know, nearly half the states actually either determined or defaulted to basically having no exemptions, to simply saying, we're going to have smart snacks at the minimum apply to all foods sold during the school day. Mm-hmm. And Of course, the caveat to that is anything not sold, so things like parties or food rewards are not included in that legislation at baseline. Mm-hmm. But the, so, it, so there's a whole bunch of states where they simply said, you know what, we're just not going to have exemptions. It is what it is. This no is what's good sales. for kids. Yeah. Done. Mm-hmm. There's a few states that have said, okay, well, we'll allow, you know, one a semester or one per club, you know, at this time, trying to sort of keep things in the occasional frame. And then there's a handful of states um, that took this as an opportunity to push back a little bit more holistically on the whole concept and defined occasional in a way that... Um, I think it's probably very different from what most people would define occasional at in that they said things like you can have up to 30 fundraisers a year and each of those can last multiple days Mm -hmm. or you can have, you know, up to a few a week and each of those can last multiple days. So when you actually do the math, you could essentially be having a fundraiser practically every day or every other day in some of these states. Right, right. Um, and, And before we go any further,
0: I think we should explain that Smart Snacks is actually an interim rule. Can you explain what that means? Sure.
1: So when USDA set up the school meals rules and they issued the final, that was a final rule, meaning it is in place and the only way to alter that rule is to fully reopen it, issue updated proposed rule, ask for comments, etc., via the pro- the official rulemaking process. What USDA did with the Smart Snacks rule was they offered a proposed rule, they took in comments from that, and then they issued an interim final rule. An interim final rule is special in that it operates like a final rule in that people have to comply. It Mm -hmm. is the rule of the day. We're supposed to meet those standards. You know, we can be judged accordingly. That said, USDA has some more flexibility to tweak that rule prior to making it final. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that they've been doing really intentionally since issuing the interim final rule is talking to schools and districts and finding out what's working. You know, were there any sort of unanticipated challenges? or little things about the rule that make it easier or harder to implement that may want they may want to tweak prior to officially finalizing that rule. So it it affords them a little bit of flexibility in making it final. Mm-hmm. That said, it doesn't mean people don't have to do it yet, because it really is the rule of the land. Right. Got it. Okay.
0: Uh, so, you know, recently, especially recently, I feel like I'm seeing more political resistance bubbling up at the state level around stuff like bake sales and other so-called junk food fundraisers. And, you know, like uh, legislative activity in Virginia, Michigan and Arizona has been in the news in the last few weeks.
1: You know, what's going on? Well, I think, you know, this is one of these issues where there's politics and there's policy and they're interacting with one another. Mm -hmm. So much of the progress made in school nutrition and the updated standards um, has come, you know, during the recent administration. And there's been tremendous support from the recent administration. And and that's been really valuable in moving things forward. That said, those who are, you know, not necessarily supportive of the current administration also look for ways to sort of poke holes in those policies. So in some cases, we see legislation Legislation getting lifted up in a way that has more of a political motivation mm-hmm. than necessarily a policy motivation. The other thing that's happened, I think, to some extent, is that there has been some confusion about what the policy applies to and mm-hmm. what you know what the opening is for and st- uh, which states can act. So, you know, the the smart snacks policy, as we discussed, applies to all foods sold during the school day. Mm-hmm. It things like you know after school events or football games or basketball games are already not included in that policy. Mm -hmm. But some of the debate we see playing out at the state level will reference those events, you know, that we don't want USDA to be setting standards for what's at our football game. Well, they're not. (laughs) We don't really need to have exemptions to that. So, um, And in some cases, you know, what we see playing out in some of this is that we'll have a student group or a parent group or someone come to their policymaker and say, we'd like some exemption for something specific. Mm-hmm. You know, probably a great example of this was um, in Oklahoma, where a student group indicated that they wanted an exemption to the policies so they could continue to have Spirit Week, mm-hmm. which would allow them some flexibility for that one week. And the board sort of heard that and said, well, we should be able to have, you know, a lot more exemptions than that. Mm-hmm. We will set this really sweeping policy um, that allows huge exemptions. So sometimes the what what comes back from the legislature, from the Board of Education, depending on who's been... Yeah. Um, playing with the rule in some cases far exceeds what even those advocating for some exemptions were even asking for. Interesting. Yeah.
0: So, so you know, what we get is some political grandstanding. Um, and as you said, on the part of legislators, some misunderstanding about the rules along with that. Um, you know, so within states that are liberal with ravers that you know that are allowing a, a, like a large number of days for, for food fundraisers, we are still seeing districts that find a way to stand their ground. So you know, so it's possible for a um, for a for a district to you know the, to locally remain
1: strict, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think what's, what's critically important about all of this, be it USDA standard or any exemptions to that standard, is that there is no preemption, meaning that districts can always do more. They can always set a higher bar or a higher standard, and that absolutely applies to the fundraising exemptions. A dist- many districts prior to any of these rules being set already had strong standards around what they would allow for fundraisers during or even after the school day. And they can absolutely maintain, or even raise that bar. So it provides a great opportunity for local districts, school food service directors, administrators, you know, parents, students, whomever the advocacy coalition is to come together and say, you know what, what's best for our students and our community is to set you know, this this different standard, and to not allow these exempt fundraisers throughout mm-hmm. the school day, and certainly in such great numbers.
0: Right. And we're going to be hearing about that um, in the second half of the show. Um, so, so you know, just back to the issue of local legislators. I mean, what you sometimes hear from politicians is that taking away cupcake parties, and not that they can count, but you know what I'm saying. Candy fundraisers is is petty and invasive and not really about child welfare. But Safe and Healthy Kids maintains that these strict smart snack rules are actually really helping kids. And what do you base that claim on?
1: I think, you know, if we go back 10 years when we started to advocate for healthier foods in schools, a lot of it was logical. We knew kids were spending, you know, It's much time in school or more time in school than any other place outside their house. They were getting as many as half of their calories in the day. It simply makes sense that that school environment is critically important to kids' health, and so we need to pay attention to what's in it. Fast forward to today, there has been enough changes over time and enough research of those changes that we actually have the evidence Mm -hmm. that that's true. So Mm -hmm. we know that in districts that implemented healthier nutrition standards for their snack food environment, that kids actually gained less weight over a three-year period of time. Wow. We yeah. know that in districts that are have updated the healthier school meal standards and are serving more fruits and vegetables, that kids are actually eating more fruits and vegetables and that plate waste has not increased. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think now we have the evidence on which to stand to say... Not only is it logical that the school nutrition environment is critical to kids' health, but in fact, we know that it is, that we're seeing those differences in children's health, and we'll also hear it anecdotally, you know, from school nutrition professionals, from uh, teachers, from administrators, et cetera, who say, you know, since we've updated our nutrition standards or since we've been serving healthy foods, and particularly if we're incorporating more nutrition education and really making this part of our school culture, our students are doing better. They're more engaged. You know, we see fewer trips to the nurse's office. We see better attendance. And those things matter to education outcomes as well.
0: Right, right. Okay. But um, not everyone understands how the Smart Snacks rules, as they're currently written, can really make a difference when they continue to allow for, you know, highly processed packaged foods that aren't necessarily nutritionally dense. Um, you probably remember that you know, NPR recently reported on the presence of whole grain flame and hot Cheetos in school vending machines. And, and that was on a podcast called The Salt. And that, that news went viral. And, and I think that this was because it took a lot of people by surprise. I mean, the reaction was kind of like, is this the face of the new improved school food? You know, maybe reformulated Cheetos have whole grain in them, but are kids getting the right message?
1: defining what a healthy food is is probably one of the most challenging things that regulators, the health professionals, anyone has to do. And part of that is because everyone has an opinion, right, of what mm-hmm. is a healthy food. And we we take that from either from science or from our own personal experience or other things we're exposed to. When it comes to the agency, they actually have to translate, you know, the concept of setting a healthy standard into technical standards. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what USDA did by nature of their directive from Congress was translate the dietary guidelines from Ameri- for Americans, which gives recommendations on a diet broadly right it Mm -hmm. says big picture you need fruits and vegetables and whole grains and all these things and had to translate that to individual products and set a standard for individual products and so they set you know a pretty moderate bar in terms of it can't have any more than x number of calories it can't have more than this much saturated fat sodium it has to have you know fruit or vegetable or whole grain etc so kind of using the best pipeline possible. They took this general diet guidelines into specifics for products. Mm -hmm. And then that applies to, it can be fruits and vegetables and low-fat dairy and these foods that, you know, seem sort of in the common vernacular like healthy foods, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, industry can innovate to meet those standards and we can get what are essentially healthier versions of products that may have already, been in the marketplace, but perhaps had higher fat or higher sodium or less whole grains or mm-hmm. other things. So that it, it is not, you know, by definition, we have not necessarily changed everything dramatically, but we have made healthier versions or brought students to healthier versions of some of those things that exist. An important factor in this goes back to the issue of USDA setting a floor, not mm-hmm. a ceiling. Mm-hmm. So districts, states, et cetera, can, of course, build on that standard. So they have all the flexibility in the world to decide what products they serve and sell that meet the USDA standard. That So they, they don't necessarily have to go with sort of updated products or more processed products mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that meet the letter of the law mm-hmm. if they don't want to. Right, right. And
0: we call those copycat foods. So in other words, children who um, get excited about the Cheetos at school, can go to the local Seven Eleven and find the other kind of Cheetos. So, you know, it is an issue. But as you say, um, districts can make their own decisions. But, you know, I have to say I'm still, I, mean, I get it. And I, and I you know, and I understand what the USDA is after and I find it hard to argue with, but I'm still uncomfortable. You know, I, I recently explored the a la carte offerings at a Midwestern district um, because the food service director there was named an SA, uh, School Nutrition Association School Nutrition Hero for 2015, and I went in expecting to see apples and baby carrots and popcorn and trail mix. And you know what I found was this, you know, a la carte menu laden with stuff like uh, frozen cotton candy flavor Twister cup and low fat ice cream sandwiches made with partially hydrogenated vegetable oil and a laundry list of other industrial. Additives, you know, and it was a lot more. And like all their items were in compliance with the Smart Snacks rules. I actually ran a check on everything using the um, Alliance for a Healthier Generation product calculator. So, you know, it's it's confusing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a great opportunity to emphasize the value of sort of local input and local control. You know, sometimes with the updated standards, some of the pushback is that there's been too much directive from the federal level. That said, you know, USDA set, set the floor, like I said, but there's tons of opportunity at the local level mm-hmm. to really look at the specific products that are being offered, at the specific things that are on the a la carte line, at the menu level, in the school broadly, that are being done as fundraisers, and to Deciding sort of, okay, what do we want to define healthy as? We know Mm -hmm. it has to meet at least these standards. It has to check these boxes. But like you said, there's a lot of variability of what you can serve that checks those boxes. We know from our um, kitchen infrastructure and training study that we did at the rollout of the updated school meal standards in 2012, that a lot of people already have their sights on smart snacks as well, that one of the things a lot of um, school food service directors are planning on doing was more scratch cooking, you know, Mm -hmm. more kind of cooking from scratch. And we know from um, recent polls that this is something that parents see as valuable. They like that idea of foods being prepared locally. They also like the idea of local procurement. Mm-hmm. We've also seen a growth in, you know, salad bars and site items that are fruits and vegetables in some schools. So I think it can be done, mm-hmm. but it it certainly takes, you know, that ingenuity and that motivation from the local level to to go to that Culture
0: change is so hard. Yeah, that's what it comes down (laughs) to. So, you know, Jessica, our next guest, um, Dr. Uh, Lynette Dodson is a food service director at a district that opted to ditch competitive foods and snack vending almost entirely. So and yet her bottom line remains solid as students gravitate to reimbursable meals and, and the components of reimbursable meals. Is this a tactic that you're seeing a lot of?
1: We have certainly seen some, and I'm thrilled you're talking to Dr. Dodson because she's fantastic and can really be a role model for other districts that are trying to make these decisions along the way. But one of the things, we did a health impact assessment looking at what the potential impact of the updated, Standards now called Smart Snack Standards, would be both on children's health and on school environments and school um, finances. And one of the things we found was that in districts that had updated their, their competitive foods, quote-unquote, to meet, you know, updated nutrition standards, mm-hmm. that on average they actually broke even or increased their overall school food service revenue because they were able to redirect students to the school meal. Mm-hmm. And the critical component of, you know, doing well financially while reducing their smart snack. Availability or at that point, not so smart snack availability, <laughs> snack availability via a la carte or vending, et cetera, was getting students to participate in school lunch. And, you know, like anything, the less competition you have going against your meal, the more likely you are to be able to actually market and sell those meals. And that ultimately is better both for students' health because it's a well balanced meal and for school budget. So I think that is an example of, of something that can be effective in districts.
0: Right, right, right. Well, Jessica, as- As ever, it's been really great to have your help in thinking things through. Um, So thank you again for joining us today. and, And really, thanks for the great work you're doing in promoting better snack ways in our schools. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Okay. This is Inside School Food. You've been listening to a conversation about smart snacks in schools with Jessica Donza Black, who is director of the Safe and Healthful Kids Project. After station break, uh, Dr. Dodson may astonish you with her tales of highly profitable fundraisers that involve not cupcakes but Thanksgiving turkeys, 5K runs, and a lot more stuff that's really good for you. And this song's called Pale Blue by The Landing We'll be right back Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Welcome back to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network. I am Laura Stanley. Um, so to deepen today's conversation about smart snacks, I invited onto the show a food service director from a district that's almost entirely drop snack foods. So why would I do that? Uh, because, as we're about to hear, it can be effective in maintaining business for full meals and meal components um, that are sold a la carte. In this district's case, case, the absence of snacks also reinforces a culture of health that the community is is pretty proud of. Uh, Dr. Lynette Dodson is in her fifteenth year as director of school nutrition for Carrollton City Schools in Western Georgia, which is at the foot of the Appalachians. Um, she's a registered dietitian and holds her PhD in food service and hospitality management. In uh, 2013, Lynette was named the Georgia um, School Nutrition Association's School Nutrition Director of the Year in recognition of work that has earned all her district schools gold-level status in the Healthier U.S. School Challenge. Uh, Carrollton was among the first districts in the nation to receive a USDA farm-to-school planning grant, and under Lynette's leadership, the district has also received seven Georgia SHAPE grants and support from the Alliance for the Healthier your generation. So I've really enjoyed getting to know Lynette, and I'm so happy to share you with my audience today, Lynette. Welcome. Thank you so much, Laura. I appreciate the opportunity. So let's get a quick sketch of your program. Let's start out by telling, how many kids
2: do you have there? Okay, we have just under 4,900 students. Um, we are, as you said, located directly west of Atlanta, um, and we have kind of a unique situation where all four of our schools are on one campus. So just under 5,000 students in four schools really in one location, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is is a benefit to us in a lot of ways, especially in the school nutrition program. 55% of our district is free and reduced, So we're not a a real high, you know, percentage of free and reduced, but we're also not on the low end. I'd say we're average um, in that area as well. Um, And as you mentioned, our farm to school efforts um, began several years ago, and that has expanded um, as we've continued to advance from that planning stage. Um, This past year, we were actually selected by The Department of Agriculture um, to be a Georgia test kitchen. We're one of 10 um, school districts. Our junior high was selected to basically test locally grown recipes for the benefit of other school districts in the state of Georgia to kind of get student feedback Mm -hmm. and also staff preparation to help hopefully make that more successful for other schools to implement
0: I'm, I'm pretty excited about the georgia test kitchen project and um i will be doing an episode on that i think as soon as they're ready for for prime time it's really great work i'm assuming since you're participating in that project that you um, have a pretty good kitchen setup and you're doing a, a lot of scratch cooking already
2: we are. We we try to do as much scratch cooking as we're able to. It's challenging sometimes with labor um, mm-hmm. costs and all. But and where we where we can, even we do kind of that semi homemade type of implementation right. where maybe we take something um, like a beef item or a chicken item and then add fresh fruits and vegetables to it to create like an Asian bowl or something that kind of meets it in the middle, if you will. Of, mm-hmm. Having to do everything from scratch, but really bringing in that fresh um, food element, we try to do that as much as we can um, right, right. in all of our menus. So,
0: it seems that speed scratch has become the the most popular term to describe that. Um, I, I like that term. It, it I think does. That's it a works. Neat term. Yeah, it works. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, the Carrollton schools have almost entirely given up on competitive foods and vended snacks. You know, when did that happen and why did you do it?
2: It, It's really been a process, and I guess that's what I would encourage listeners to understand, that it's not something that necessarily occurs overnight. It can. Um, In our district, it has definitely been a process. Um, When I became the director, the focus had had shifted definitely at that point with the leadership of the superintendent that hired me, um, the high school had eliminated pretty much all of the vending with the exception of two beverage machines. And I'm I'm very proud to say that over the 15 years that I've been here, the principals that have um, been responsible for that school have maintained that as mm-hmm. well and, you know, that's a challenge sometimes when they're looking for ways to supplement budgets that have been cut through other funding sources and they've, they've held that standard and I think we've even maybe gone a step further um, with getting the Healthier U.S. School Challenge that made us evaluate where we are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and where we were at that point. We were awarded that status in 2011. so. Um, Getting that recognition is something our current superintendent is extremely proud of, as well as our school board, and in in the process of renewing that because we're we're in that process now that all of those statuses expire this year in 2015 Mm -hmm. so we're doing a dual application to both the alliance and Healthier U.S. School Challenge so we're doing the inventory process if you will of seeing where everyone is um, with physical activity and other things of course besides fundraising Mm -hmm. Um, but but with the recent um, changes that happened last summer with the Georgia Department of Education kind of taking a more liberal approach, if you will, to Smart Snacks. Very liberal, yeah, in Georgia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it made me aware that if we weren't careful and didn't get it implemented soundly in our policy, that that's something that we could lose control of in our district. Right. So right. I met with a superintendent who was just amazingly um, in support of maintaining that standard and um, went to the school board and approached them about making it part of our wellness policy to have no exempted food fundraisers in our district. And the school board was just very adamant about not taking a step back in that area Mm -hmm. and supported it wholeheartedly. And so in October, we updated our wellness policy to have that language so that now that, you know, we'll continue to protect that in a more policy-maintained um, way. Right. And so it, it helps as we have, you know, changes with school administrators. Sometimes they come in from other areas that maybe did a lot more food fundraising that wasn't so healthy. Mm-hmm. And so to kind of understand that culture of of where Carrollton has really shifted the focus to be on other Measures of fundraising, I think, is, um, is really helpful, especially when that policy is in place. Right. And there's,
0: there's the pride that the community has um, in its status, in, the, uh, in its gold status in Healthier U.S. School Challenge, which is, I think, very motivating for new administrations uh, joining, the, joining the district. Uh, yeah, and I is. should add that in Georgia, you you said that the the policy with regard to fundraising labors, uh, waivers is liberal. It's very liberal. I mean, technically, food fundraising during school hours is permitted for up to ninety days a year in Georgia. Um, so yeah, you you've had to hold your ground. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, so, so
0: yes, we um, have. So, Lynette, where does giving up competitive foods and vending snacks fit in with helping you qualify for that gold status?
2: Well, um, it it actually now is mandated that there's no um, unhealthy food fundraising to even apply for the bronze status Mm -hmm. of um, the alliance. And so that was one of the things. uh, There's some districts that have done still some very good things with limiting it to maybe, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, one or two fundraisers per semester. Mm -hmm. But in looking at even that sort of policy, um, that wouldn't have made us – you know, compliant to maintain um, that that recognition right. that you know everybody does find very important, particularly our superintendent. So that's when I realized you know we needed to kind of, if you will, get it set in policy mm-hmm. um, to ensure that. And and I think too, the challenge for us district wide has been that policy is implemented. And is in place, but then sometimes there's some little ancillary things that can develop. So making everyone aware of that policy mm-hmm. change has been something that, you know, we've, we've tried to do this school year, because obviously it's new, and sometimes there might be a classroom activity that doesn't necessarily pass through um, the typical fundraising means mm-hmm. of approval. Well, in and other so words, like a, like
0: a cupcake party or something, right?
2: Exactly, mm-hmm. kind of getting those procedures cleaned up, if you will, mm-hmm. um, and 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 the support from the principals in doing that has been tremendous. Right, Because um, right. par- parents can get doubt, pretty upset you know, when
0: you tell them their kids can't have a cupcake party, so it it does it does take you know to holding the line. Um so Lynette as as you heard I promised listeners that you would astonish them with your tales of healthy fundraising. So, you know, <laughs> let's do it. Like what do Carrollton teams and clubs right. actually do to raise money?
2: All right. Well, one of the biggest things that we have had now for 28 years is an athletic auction that takes place in every March and it actually is the main fundraiser for all of our high school um, athletic programs and it 's a tremendous fundraiser that the community comes together for there 's donations that are taken, and it generates a real significant amount of money um, that supports we have i believe thirteen and don 't quote me on that but mm-hmm. there 's a bunch of our city sports we 're very very well known not only for our academics in the area but also for athletics and art so that that athletic piece is supported by this athletic auction. Um, that but, takes place every spring. And what, and what are they auctioning? Oh, my goodness, they auction trips to Italy. They wow. auction um, sports memorabilia mm-hmm. signed from um, local college teams, professional teams. Um, it's a variety of things. There's packages for spa days, um, a lot of donations we've had kayaks um so i mean it's just a broad broad array they've they'll grow you know up to 100 and Twenty, thirty thousand dollars in yeah. that auction. And then, of course, expenses have to come out of that for the venue and food and mm-hmm. and things that are part of that. But it it is a very significant source of um, funding for our athletic programs on campus. Right. And right. then our our high school also started a Trojan store, which basically sells. We're we're kind of unique in Carrollton, as I mentioned. All our schools are on one campus we're also Carrollton Trojans from Mm -hmm. pre-K through 12th grade. Mm -hmm. So um, with that, our um, high school and our athletic booster club started a Trojan store that sells all kinds of memorabilia and, you know, t-shirts and hats and different things, flags for your cars. Everybody's very Trojan proud. Um, (laughs) That's part of the Carrollton um, city nation. So, you know, as a result, those things are, are things that they purchase and want. Friday night football is a big, big thing in Carrollton. Um, we have a really nice stadium and facility and, and, you know, we'll average, you know, five to even upwards for playoff games, sometimes 10,000 people attending right. those games. Yeah. So, it, you know, that also is a support Um with that, you know, the season ticket sales and right, then just right. Friday night general admission sales support that. Our elementary school also has been doing a um, Jingle Bell Jog 5K, which is their main fundraising for their PTVO group. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been huge as far as how that event has grown. They've had well over 500 participants um, in that event from all around the community and other areas. And they get sponsors that do a really cute T-shirt, so that kind of markets it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then essentially everything that they get for the um, entrance fee becomes – you know, what they've made from the event. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a huge, that's a huge fundraiser for our elementary so, school. So
0: running instead of selling candy bars, you
2: know, what exactly. more stark
0: contrast can you come up with? It? And you also have this Thanksgiving turkey drive.
2: That makes a lot of money too, right? Well, our band, just to give kind of another example, we have a have a really nice marching band program at the high school. So what they do, and this has, again, been many, many years. I know I've been in Carrollton Um, since 1996 as a parent, and I believe it's gone on even prior to that. But they sell um, frozen turkeys and also fresh fruit, um, and it's pre-ordered from the band, and it's their largest fundraiser. Mm -hmm. And so right before Thanksgiving, you know, people can come and pick up their frozen turkeys, their fruit, and all that, and have it, um, you know, for home Thanksgiving, Christmas type events and, and that is a really large, large fundraiser awesome. um, for our band booster program. Right, right, and um, bands certainly have,
0: have big fundraising needs, so that's really impressive. You know, so for districts that insist that their teams and clubs will go broke if they're not permitted to hold bake sales, we give you Exhibit A, Carrollton City Public Schools. been <laughs> <It's> amazing, <laughs> um, We've been speaking with the Director of Nutrition there, Dr. Lynette Dodson, about what it takes. Um, Lynette, thank you so much for telling your story today
2: thank you so much for the opportunity I really appreciate it Laura you've been listening to inside
0: school food on the heritage radio network today's episode and resource links is available for your listening pleasure at insideschoolfood.com iTunes stitcher and wherever else fine podcasts are found it is also available at the site of our host station heritage radio network.com org, along with a whole lot of other podcasts about what's going on in the wide world of real food. So I encourage you to go foraging there. Um, I'm Laura Stanley. Next week we pay a visit to El Monte City Schools in California. Uh, have you heard of them? If you have, that's good. So but maybe you need to turn in tune in and learn why. There's quite a story there.